what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on the Mesh.tv podcast network. I am Alan Jackson. With me is Chris Fry. We are both with the Foot Candle Film Society and the annual Foot Candle Film Festival. But today we are here on the Foot Candle Films podcast. Chris, how are you doing? I am doing well. Um, I'm interested to, of course, I'm always interested to sit down and talk about movies, but you and I both seen this movie, but we did not see it together. And I'm really curious as to your your thoughts. Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment. The thoughts on the film uh, that Chris is uh, alluding to is the film Origin, the latest by writer-director Ava DuVernay. We will be discussing that film in just a moment and giving a review of our shared experiences in watching this film. Uh, After that, Chris and I have a slew of movie news to discuss, some uh, upcoming production, some uh, release dates being announced, some uh, interesting director's choices and projects I want to explore a little bit, Some definitely some news to dig into a little bit later in the episode. We will get to that shortly. Uh, But first, as we said, let's go ahead and jump into our review of the film Origin. Everywhere. All over the place. There's connective tissue. All of this. All of it. Is linked. Not familiar with Isabel Wilkerson or her book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect with the film that director Ava DuVernay had made from it. DuVernay, whose previous films included Selma and the documentary 13th, adapted Wilkerson's book into a biopic of sorts that followed Wilkerson as played by Anjanou Ellis Taylor as she researched the book Origin and struggled to write it. Um, Alan, what was your experience with this film? Um, so it, it it's going to be a little tricky for me on this. I, I'll explain why. Because I'm of several different minds of this film. I want to go ahead and say right off the bat, uh, you said you know this is a film that is, quote, based on a book, although it's a very interesting approach to, it is based off the book, it's not a direct adaptation to the book. It is exploring the themes of the, the book. Because the book is a nonfiction The book, book is nonfiction. Right. And, and the book and the movie that now joins it, it's really talking about this unspoken system that, that is referred to as caste system that has, in the author's belief, you know, has really shaped America and chronicled how people live today and how we are defining ourselves in this hierarchical structure and using examples like race relations in the United States and using a a caste system in India as different reference points. Those are all things explored in the book in a nonfiction book, taking this into a film to say, okay, how can we explore those things, share this knowledge and, and, and belief system and, and explore it with the, with the audience, but couching it in a narrative that happens to be a little bit of a meta, you know, commentary on the author and the inspiration she had for writing the book and what she was going through in her personal life during that time. Okay. That all being said, now see that description right there, mm -hmm. that's a lot. It is a lot. And I think that's where I'm going to come down on this film is that it's a lot. (laughs) And I do think it's trying to accomplish two different things. I think it's very successful in one thing. I don't think it's very successful in the other. Um, I understand there's a desire to to take this this nonfiction book and this topic and explore it. Sure. And I think that there was a desire to say, let's make this more palatable to an audience by couching it in this narrative 
you know, with actors and, and, and having a kind of a drama going along with it involving the, the author. I don't think that part of the film works. And I found myself so utterly fascinated by the actual direct interpretation of the book, hmm. the stories, the, the examples, the, the research involved in the caste system and, and how it has been so pervasive in our society. That to me was interesting. That to me was really well done. I think the, uh, there's several sequences and flash, uh, not flashbacks, but sequences, uh, uh, historical dramatic interpretations of yes. scenes and, and characters. I thought were really all good. I really enjoyed all that. I think I would have been fine with a film that kind of just stayed on that. And I, I just felt like when we kept coming back to the author and what was going on in her life, I had a really hard time understanding the connective tissue that made it necessary to do this to this extent and to pack this much into this film when I feel like it could have really honed in on the things that worked so well and been so much more of an effective film. So that to say, look, I think it's a fascinating topic. I am, I put the book on my Amazon wish list to start mm. reading because I'm fascinated by the concept, the topic. I think it's a, I think it's a discussion people need to have. I think it's something that's important for our society to explore. I just, I, I, I do question the need to layer in the, the drama, the narrative drama in this film that I don't feel like really had a place. And I don't feel like it really ultimately added up. I don't think all of these pieces added up to the sum of its parts in the end of the day. I, I felt like there was about a half the film that, that didn't work where the other half worked extremely well. So that's where I am with it. It's a little disjointed. It's a little over the place. Ultimately I'm recommending the film because I think it's an interesting watch, but I don't think it's the best well-crafted film choices they could have made to tell this story. Hmm. So Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you now because I feel like I'm rambling and not making much well, sense. But. It's, it's, it is like, you know, I kind of said, kind of hinted my, at my hand. It, it is a film that is doing a lot and kind of echoing what you said about the recreations or the, the flashbacks of events in history that kind of are examples of like the caste system. Like they do some exploration of Nazi Germany and they mm -hmm. show some things there. And, um, and then they show like things in India, like you were mentioning with the caste system. And I thought those were blended creatively within the film and that they kept the film moving and kept me interested. This film is almost two and a half hours and that being said, I felt like it, it moved for me. It didn't kind of, there was always something moving it sure. forward. Um, you mentioned kind of the, some of the things that were not in those flashbacks or recreation scenes. Um, and they were basically people talking over ideas that I'm assuming were directly from the book. Right. Um, and those worked for me. Um, and I think it's kind of a, because of the actress uh, that I mentioned who's playing the writer, Isabel Wilkinson um, or Wilkerson. Ingenue Ellis Taylor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, people may recognize her from what she did in King Richard, where she mm -hmm. played the, the wife um, to the, to Richard. <laughs> to Will Smith's story. character. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she was really like a strong person in that. And I think her, you know, being a strong person in this movie, she, you can tell this person's really driven. She's, you know, a writer and she's really dedicated to what she does and um, really wants to dive into her work. Yeah, I, I get all that. So I thought had it been anybody else, I'm not sure it would have been as a convincing portrayal. And I'll say the people that um, in two instances, Connie Nielsen plays somebody who actually kind of pushes back. Mm. Um, she plays Sabine and she has this conversation about, some of the theories that are going on in Wilkerson's book. And she kind of pushes back to Wilkerson about what she's saying. And Wilkerson just kind of sits there and is like kind of disagrees with it, but tries to take in what this person's saying. There's another scene where um, she kind of goes around and interviews people with different experiences to try to, mm -hmm. you know, get material for a book. Um, Alder McDonald plays um, Miss Hale and mm -hmm. she tells a story kind of recounting how she grew up and tells a story. And, if you'd had lesser actors doing some of that, I don't think those parts would have worked, but I can see what you're saying. I mean, <laughs> Isabel Wilkinson, Wilkerson, she had three different things 
she lost three different people that were very close to her mm-hmm. in her life. And granted, seemingly because of the compact nature of the film, it was just like, my goodness, it was yeah. almost like too impossible to believe. Well, it, it, and that kind of, and that, that in, in addition to trying to show the progress of the book, yeah. maybe kind of could throw people in, off. And here, and I don't want to be insensitive to it because I mean, I understand this is a, a pseudo biography blended with a adaptation of a book of that said author. Yeah, because it only documents her during the time she's writing right. this book, right? And yes, I mean, obviously, this did all happen to her while she was writing this book. I found myself struggling, Chris, to understand what it is we were to take truly from the the turmoil she went through in her personal life, which I think was all presented extremely well sure. and acted extremely well. I mean, okay. I think the performances were all really good, but I wonder what what all of that fed into the rest of the movie, like mm-hmm. the, the the exploration of the cast system. And I mean, like you just said, I thought one of the best moments was the sit down discussion she had with Miss Hale. Okay. I just mentioned. And again, I know that was quote an acted scene, but right. it was obviously based on something real that, you know, Isabel Wilkerson either knew or had somebody that uh, we were just seeing a, a dramatic interpretation of that, that dialogue. Sure. All of those scenes work. But then when we, are led to kind of go back to see Isabel's personal life and the things happening in her life and what's happening. I had, I just had a really hard time understanding what were we supposed to, what was that supposed to be impacting the, the other 75% of the story that we're Mm. hearing. Okay. And again, that's the part of the film I felt like, you know, I just don't, I don't think it fit. I don't think it worked. I feel like it packed more into the film than it needed. I get it. I think I understand that, you know, yes, it's interesting and it's, I'm sure an exploration to understand that during writing this very pivotal and important book, this author did have all of this happening in her personal life. And yes, that's, that is something worth a story of telling. But when you've got a film like this, that spends so much of its time on those really big, important concepts and stories, and then you're flipping back to a personal story that I didn't really see the connection to make to help me understand why, why sure. are, why are we doing this? You know? And it just, and I think it's a little, a little too much dichotomy there. And I, I just, I, I really wanted them to hone in on the things that work so well, because that in itself made for an excellent movie. So, yeah. And I think you're saying basically they was like, they were switching gears. Mm-hmm. And when they were in the gear of the topics that were covered in the book, that was working for you. But when they would switch back to the personal life gear, it was kind of, the transition wasn't smooth and you didn't see how they kind of worked together. And I can, I can see that basically from, if I'm hearing what you're saying for you, it would have worked better if they would have been like basically a biopic of this author kind of telling her story and how she wrote the book, but then a separate thing, basically maybe a documentary of just the ideas presented in the book and trying to combine the two. It just wasn't a, I think it's a combination. Both are equally of interest and something worth telling a story of, but you know, um, and I think the film in a way kind of also kind of started to feel that way. The filmmakers by the end, because I noticed the last probably 30 minutes of the film, it was all the exploration of the cast system and the okay. stories and the dialogue. And there was like hardly anything on a personal side. And I think it's like, yeah, because this is, this is, this is the film. This is what we're telling. This is what we want people to take away from. It's like, it almost felt like even they realized, yeah, there wasn't a lot of connective tissue between what was happening in her personal life and some of that storyline and what we're really trying to make this film about. So that's the kind of the feeling I got. Now I will say the film pulled off something that I, I'm going to give it tons of credit for. I mean, I I get, I give this film a lot of credit. I think it's an important film. I think it's a, a very passionate film by, by DuVernay. And I, I, I'm glad it was made. I'm glad it's being seen. The ending of the film, you know, you have your, your narrator voiceover, kind of summing up a lot of the concepts that we've been learning about and hearing about and thinking about these last two hours. And she, the author, and I, and this was from the book I did find out. So it wasn't just written for the filming. This is from the book, this home analogy, this house analogy, old house analogy to represent everything at that point. I'm like, okay, I kind of, I'm seeing now, the house, yes, what was happening in the house is a physical man- a representation of what 
what the what this bigger picture story is about. Okay. So at that point, they started it started to work a little bit where I'm like, okay, there was some connection with what was going on in her personal life, but it still wasn't enough to to make that whole that whole part of the film just film justified for me. So again, I, I feel I feel a little guilty making making those comments because again, both both sides of the stories that are being told are extremely good and important stories, and I want to hear more about them. I just feel like when you're trying to put this together into a film and you've got such important messages to share, I just feel like it, it, it lost sight of that from time to time by trying to balance both sides and didn't deliver on a fully cohesive story that really could have been as, as impactful as it needed to be. Um, that being said, I do think acting was, was great across the board. I'm with you. I think Anjanu Ellis Taylor was great in this role. Granted, a lot of her role did spend of reading voiceover narration and <laughs> asking people, almost interviewing people sure. and listening. So it wasn't as much to do in some situations, but the times that she did get a chance to let the character of Isabel Wilkerson be a real character on screen, it worked and she did really great with it. I thought Niecy Nash was really great as her cousin Marion. Um, very, very good performance there too. So I was really impressed with that. Um, and then a lot of the other roles, uh, much smaller roles for everybody else. I mean, they had some uh, specific scenes, but um, well, let, everybody pretty strong though that was in there. Well, there was okay, there somebody so, not. So you know, I've overall it seems like I'm I'm giving a little bit more of a pass to some of the stuff that was uh, dealt with the author's life. It seems okay. like I'm um, overall. However, I will say you mentioned two. You get, the cast, there's a lot of different people because she's talking to a lot of pe- yeah. people. She's bouncing all over the world. She goes to India. She goes to Berlin. She's, you know, she's, you know, world traveler going all over the place. Two things that did not work for me okay. were two cameos. Um, one, oh, I know one of really them. didn't work. Nah, I know and the other one about. felt too slight. But um, Nick Offerman has a cameo as a plumber. Yeah. And actually in the credits, he's like Larry the plumber. So it's like they couldn't even, it was yeah. just, and he is coming to the house that you're talking about. Yeah. And to like, you know, look at a situation that she, the she's called on there. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson needs this house worked on and calls in there. And their interaction just seems to be so stereotypical. And they don't just let you kind of learn it, but they, they feel like they want to make sure that you know what kind of character Nick Offerman is. Oh, well. So they put a, a MAGA hat on him. And I'm yeah. like, you know, was, you didn't need that. Yeah, and that did. was too, like, too in-your-face, ham-fisted no, for I me. You. I agree. And it wasn't the acting in the scene. It was just the dialogue they yeah. were given. And, what the, and I understand, obviously, you can guess what they're trying to communicate, but that didn't work. The other one that didn't work for me, but to a lesser degree – was uh, Vera Farmiga. She's basically the book agent Mm. for Wilkerson. And they were doing some interesting things there where she was kind of pushing back a little bit, just like the Connie Nielsen character when she, Mm -hmm. they were having that discussion. Like, I don't think you have, she was challenging Vera Farmiga's character. The agent was kind of challenging Wilkerson on like, I don't see what you're doing. I don't think you have a book here, Mm -hmm. but it was so surface that I felt like it was just kind of like, it was, it was a little clunky to me. Both well, of those were a little clunky. I, I felt like there was a lot of these roles that probably were, um, probably had more dialogue, more scenes, more, more involvement in a more fleshed out version. But at the same time, realizing that there's so much, so much going on being put in this film that different scenes, different characters, I kind of got the impression got a lot shorter shift. Um, the Nick Offerman scene, I'm completely with you. Actually, when that scene started, it was a bit groaning for me because I'm okay. like, okay, yeah, this is about as on the nose as you can make it. And I don't think, I think we would have picked up on what was going on just as clearly without having to like slap the big red hat on the guy and call attention to it. It's just, it was a bit much. And again, I don't fault Offerman for it. I yeah, thought his performance yeah. was great. And Ellis Taylor's performance was great in the scene. It's just it was very much on the nose and that, that was a little bit of a miss. Um, I didn't feel quite the same way about the Vera from Farmiga Kate role, but I felt like that was just an underused role where there could have been more with all, a lot of these characters. I mean, that's the thing is that the film was really a, you, you really are truly following 
two to three characters. And then everybody else was kind of a, they had their select scenes and moments of impact on the story. And then that's it. And well, and it's one thing. It gives a little bit of a sprawling feel because it's like, okay, there's somebody we saw. We only saw them for two minutes early in the film. Now we're seeing them for another minute and that's about it. Well, so. and it, to me, it's it's one thing if the Nick Offerman, Larry the Plumber, or Vera Farmer's character have been played by somebody that's not famous. Yeah. Then that's one thing. But the mm-hmm. fact that they're famous and you know you can tell by the way they even shoot the person, oh, this is somebody I should know. That, mm-hmm. that to me was kind of distracting because they weren't. It was like just so they could have another name in the credits of somebody who was, you know, famous yeah. or whatever. So it, I don't know. It just, it, it felt a little, felt a little flat for me. Now I will say, mm-hmm. and we've already talked about how the recreations of the film, I think for both of us, those were kind of some of the stronger points. Cause mm-hmm. it's, it's filling in on some of the things that we don't know about a well, her nonfiction book about the cast system and things. And those were the more effective parts of the film. Um, Favorite scene probably um, for me and probably one of the most powerful was a flashback pool scene. And that was later in the film when that's done. And it also actually paired with a motif that she had kind of in the beginning of the film, which was a flashback, but not talking about the cast system, but was basically um, it was the writer Isabel Wilkerson kind of lying on some leaves and they're all like Mm. dead fall leaves. And she has, it's kind of like, that's kind of a motif that they touch on. They touch on it twice actually. And then all this time later in the film lying on the ground on a blanket basically. And instead of there's like green grass and another kind of interaction about lying. And so the cinematography in those two moments or three moments, I guess I I really, I really thought that was good. There's good cinematography in a lot of the the film, but those points like that helped kind of tie the moment that was happening with the pool. And then right after that, there's this lying on the ground moment that, it makes more sense once you see the film, but um, I thought those were really, really. Yeah, well no, done. I, I'm with you. I think the the pool story it's a, a 1950s a story or 50s or maybe early 60s story about a, a public pool and uh, dealing with uh, uh, segregation and some um, bigotry involved in the point there with a with a young baseball team and, and one of their players. It it really it was a standout element of the film. And I love the setup for it because it's this idea where you had Wilkerson interviewing someone in the movie who was involved in the the story that we're about to see right. them recounting the story. Then we seeing the story and just so well done the way it was presented. And then you add in that, that imagery that you were discussing the sure. leaves and the laying down with uh, between Wilkerson and the, the young boy. It, it just, everything worked in that. That was a perfect thing. I, I kind of wish going after seeing that, I kind of wanted to go back to some of the other stories and like tell that, tell these stories again and use that same style and format and do that same thing because it works so well here at the end of the film. Um, there was, and I'll mention something. Okay. Jarring for me, but it, I was fascinated by it. Um, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a recreation um, but there's an individual that they cover, and this is kind of in the India section, Siraj Agendi, and he's someone that was, they talk about how he was in the lowest caste, mm-hmm. and yet he was able to become a doctor, and um, you know he's a very educated person, and he kind of leads Isabel Wilkerson around India and is like explaining stuff to her, and apparently that was him. He was playing himself in the film, which, you know... <sighs> it was kind of distracting because I kind of felt like I bet that's who this is because you can just kind of tell his personality. And if it would have just been a documentary and him going around, like I could have probably got so much more, but the fact that he's being put into this, you know, context and it's like, okay, he's playing himself, but yet he's in this recreation of something that happened. It just, I know it was a lot going on. I admire the film, just like you're saying, but I wish, yeah, I think I'm kind of thinking that it would have worked better split as a documentary and then as, you know. Well, the but, thing is, DuVernay has shown that, I mean, she's equally adept at both, at both. dramatic films and documentaries. I right. mean, I think Selma was an amazing film. Sure. I think so well made. I think 13th is an amazing documentary. So she can do both. Right. And I felt like this film was trying to do both. And that's where I'm like, it just, it was just a little too, too much to process for uh, and I felt like unfortunately when you have more to process in your own mind watching something 
it automatically dilutes the impact that either storyline could have. Okay. And that was a bit of a shame because, I mean, this film needed to have, it needed that real punch of impact that, that the story warranted. And it got close and it was really tried to get there, especially by the end when they kind of abandoned a lot of the personal story and just said, we're just going to hone in on, like, when she's, there's a whole sequence, like the whole last 20 minutes, it's a whiteboard and it's her coming up with these concepts and right. then you're hearing these stories and she's talking to people and like, that's the movie that, that worked. That was good. You know, sure. that's where we're getting somewhere. And, um, but again, not to say, look, I didn't even mention, I mean, we've mentioned a lot of the actors in the film. Uh, John Bernthal did play her husband, Brett and, um, and granted a somewhat limited role in the film. And again, it is part of that side of the film that I felt like didn't blend well and didn't really add to the overall picture. But I really, really liked the depiction of their relationship, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. the early parts of the film between uh, Isabel and Brett. Agreed. Um, it was really good. So, and even the role of her mother, uh, Ruby, um, you know, uh, Emily Yance played Ruby Wilkerson. Also very good. So I liked that. It's just give me a film of that story because that story is interesting enough. Sure. Um, and then maybe it's a kind of a blended documentary movie about the cast system and the interpretation and the, uh, and the adaptation of the book itself might've worked. So a little bit of a sub note on this. So this was a film that um, did not get any major studio um, backing and being produced. Netflix was at one point connected and then backed out of the project. So actually it was funded through a consortium of nonprofit organizations that DuVernay kind of helped solicit from. So it's not a quote self-funded project, but it's not a big studio project either. So it was a true grassroots kind of building up. I think that's great because I think that gave DuVernay the chance to make the film she wanted to make. Sure. Um, I wonder, and I say this a little facetiously, I wonder if a studio had tried, had actually bought into the project if there had not been a desire to say hone in, strip it down, let's focus in a little bit more or whatever. Not to say that the studio would have made it better. I'm not saying that, but I just, I feel like this is the sign of a project where somebody did not have to really work with any restrictions and say, mm-hmm. I can tell the story and do everything I want to do on the film. And it's all good. Just, it's a lot to do. It, it's a lot. And I feel like that ultimately impacted the, the takeaway from the film. I felt like that, that watered down that impact a bit more than it needed to be. Cause yeah, I spent the whole last 30 minutes of the film. Like, okay, how, how is the mother and her husband and her, her, her cousin, mm-hmm. what does that have to do with what we're hearing here? And I shouldn't be asking those questions in the last 20, 30 minutes because right. the stuff that's being covered is so important and, and so impactful. So anyway, that's where I'm with this film. I am, I think it's a, a, a really great feat of a film. I think it's an important film. I do think people should watch it and people should talk about it. But sometimes being an important film doesn't always mean it's the best constructed film to tell that story. And I think there, there could have been some improvements here. So, yeah, I, I, I think we're on the same page. So. Okay. It's definitely, I do recommend people check sure. it out. It's, I mean, we, we had a great conversation about the film immediately afterwards. I hope you did on Wednesday night, the night before as well. Uh, there's a lot to chew on. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of interest here. Uh, it's an important film. Just, uh, I think it could have been, I think it could be a little tighter, a little more focused. And I think it could have uh, really been more impactful at the end of the day. So that is origin. Uh, I think it's still getting some theatrical play right now. It's at the time of this, uh, the time of this recording, I don't know what the plans are for where it will be available online some point it's not available now for rent or anything is it i don't believe so okay all right don't think so either but definitely keep your eyes peeled for this it is worth checking out it is worth i think having a good watch and a conversation about the film afterwards so we we wholeheartedly do encourage that um all right chris we done with origin anything else you need to say no okay well then let's take a quick little break and when we come back we've got some movie news to share Uh, several news items of interest to us about some upcoming movie productions and announcements. So stay tuned. You're listening to foot candle films here on the mesh.tv. We will be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation to learn more, visit the Jackson 
Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. We had our review of the film Origin in the first half of the show, but now we're moving on to talk about some news items, some upcoming movie release dates or uh, announcements of new productions that we want to share and discuss here on the show. Chris, I think we have a few items here, so uh, I've got maybe one more than you do, so how about if I go ahead and jump in with my first one? Is that okay? That'll work. Okay. Um, June Squibb. Uh, is an actress. Uh, you may remember her from the film Nebraska. Yes. That uh, was the... Um, Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne film that had Will Forte and Bruce Stern, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, uh, June Squibb was in that. I think she got an Oscar nomination I for a supporting right. role in that I film as right. well. Yep. So here was kind of an interesting announcement. I, I, I know she's done some other works in between some, um, some parts here and there, but... Uh, at Sundance, okay, there I've was a film. Festival. Yes, there was a film that was uh, shown. It was an adventure comedy called Thelma, starring June Squibb. Okay, uh, directed directed by Josh Margolin. The film follows a grandmother who embarks on a quest to recoup her money after she loses ten thousand dollars in a phone scan. Okay, now. Um, the understanding is, and unfortunately we don't have a trailer yet to see of this, but the reports from Sundance are that it is truly an action comedy in that <laughs> Miss uh, June Squibb gets to do some stunts. There is action. There nice. is, uh, um, yes. So basically here's the quote, and this is from Variety. Variety reported, uh, the publication Variety reported this okay. uh, in talking to the director. It said, uh, uh, Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane is as dangerous as my grandma getting onto a bed. Margolin told Variety ahead of the premiere, I wanted to treat Thelma's mission with the sincerity and stakes that you would Ethan Hunt globetrotting to track down the bad guy. <laughs> so uh, the okay. film uh, has uh, Richard Roundtree in his final performance before he passed away is in the film. Okay. Parker Posey, Clark Gregg, and Malcolm McDowell are all in the film as well. And the film is based on an event that actually did happen to Margolin's own grandma, oh. uh, 103-year-old Thelma Post. So the film is based on his own grandmother. Okay. Who did get uh, involved in a phone scam. I do not believe his grandmother actually hunted down the person that <laughs> okay. scammed her. Fair enough. But that's what Thelma in this movie does. So uh, I don't I don't know if the movie's any good or not. It did get bought by Magnolia Pictures after seeing it in um, in Sundance. So it will be get a release. Okay. Um, it is the first leading film role of June Squibb's career. She's 94 years old. Oscar-nominated actor. She insisted on doing her own stunts for the film, which included a vehicular showdown in the hallway of a retirement home. Uh, Culminates with an electric scooter crash. Um, She was. Yes. So uh, (laughs) this sounds sounds great. (laughs) I'm I'm looking forward to this now. Absolutely. So I have always wondered what it would be like to try to treat smaller stakes um, stories with the same intensity and sincerity of a big action movie, a big Tom Cruise action movie. Right. And this may be showing what that could look like. And also, uh, I am much more interested in seeing Thelma than I am dead reckoning part two. So <laughs> I forgot that's still coming out too. Right. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, this sounds really, really fun. So, uh, that is, I don't have a release date on it. Um, again, it just showed up Sundance and just got purchased by Magnolia Pictures, so they will be releasing it. But, I mean, the film is done. It's just now it's just got to get on a release schedule. Got to. So we will keep our eyes open for that, but I was excited to hear uh, June Squibb, action comedy, the movie is Thelma, hmm. coming soon, either to a theater screen or possibly to a, a, a live streaming service uh, in the near future, we hope. So okay. okay. Um, so Chris, what do you have for us? So Alan, I'm going to tell you about two films that are going to be coming out and you have to choose one of the films to see. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. So the first is Moana two. It is a sequel to the original Moana, which you have not seen. Well, that, okay. So yes, point of question. Uh, I have not seen the original Moana. Okay. Moana. Yes. So that, could be impacting my decision as you get to the second choice. Okay, it, just it could, let you know but let me, let me go ahead and give you a little bit more detail about this, this sequel. It will not 
have the involvement of Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote a lot of the songs. I think some of them were actually Academy Award nominated for Moana. He is, he is not involved. So he is not involved in Moana 2. Correct. Okay. Now, um, the young lady who played or did the voice for Moana, she will be returning. And her name is, let me check. Her name is Auli Cavallio or something. I'm butchering her name. But she will be coming back to this animated this animated thing. Um, we don't know at this point. The article that was in USA Today didn't specifically say whether or not The Rock was coming back. But she will be in this in this movie. Okay. okay? And it is a movie. It was originally going to be a TV series. Hmm. But they decided to expand it and put it as a theatrical release. And it will be coming out. Uh, the day before Thanksgiving in 2024. Another another point of question. Yes. Uh, so you, Disney was quoted as saying that it was originally going to be a TV series, but then they decided to expand it and take a TV series. I would imagine would have had at least six or eight episodes of 30 minutes each, and they're expanding it by shortening it down to a one 90 minute movie. I'm not sure how long, but yes, that yeah yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, yeah, Uli Caravalho. I'm sorry, but that that's Ted. she's she's coming back. She's returning. Okay, all right. So she's the lead. She was the lead actress, a voice actress in the original Moana. She is coming back, but The Rock. Oh yeah, you haven't mentioned The Rock yet. Well, no, no. I say we don't. I, it hasn't been mentioned if he's coming back playing the um, Maui kind of the other character. We don't that's know. In the, we don't know. The Lin Manuel Miranda is not coming back. Right. Who did all the songs and stuff? Okay. Okay. So got that's it. the first movie. Yes. Okay. Moana so two. Gauge your first excitement choice. for Moana two. Yep. Got it. Now, Alan, a film that I'm sure you're going to be equally as excited about mm-hmm. they are making a live action remake of the first Moana and this will be starring the rock reprising his role as Maui but it's live action it's a live action remake and the girl who originally played Moana is not returning all right <laughs> so well, Chris, you one know of these one of these two movies you have to be you have to say I'm going to that that's the one that I think is wow okay this is a tough one and I'll tell you why you know my feelings on the live-action Disney uh, reinterpretations of their films. Yes. Um, not, not a fan. Not a fan. Not a fan. Uh, I thought The Little Mermaid was fine <laughs> um, as someone who had never seen the animated film of it. Um, I did not ever see the Aladdin version because I just I, – I I'm not going to. I do okay. think the animated version is classic, so I did not want to see it. Lion King, I did see – it's just I have a tough time with these. You saw the Jungle Book and reviewed it. Yeah, yeah. The Jungle Book I actually thought was okay. Okay, I did like the Jungle Book, but I, I'm I'm not been a fan of any other live. Eh, we see live action. It's these photorealistic animals in a lot of those cases too. So it's. And I really liked Cruella, and I don't think you were as big a fan. Yeah, yeah but Cruella, I don't consider a, a, a reimagining. I don't consider it a readaptation. There was never a Cruella animated movie. True. You know, I'm talking about when you take a true, like, we've already done this, and now we're going to redo it as okay. just live action. That's where I don't, I'm not a fan. Gotcha. Now, Cruella, I thought was fun. I, I did enjoy Cruella quite a bit. Okay. Um, so that's where I have an issue. So, okay, so for Moana, I'm not a fan of their approach, but seeing as how I haven't seen the animated film Moana, <laughs> if I had to have a choice between those two, I guess I'm watching the live action uh adaptation of Moana because I didn't see the original. So why would I see Moana two? And it sounds like <laughs> okay. Moana two honestly has got the, um, it's got a little bit of that stigma on it now of that Disney cash grab sequel status that they were really big on. I know back in the nineties and two thousands, it was like every big film they did animated film, they would have a either direct to video mm-hmm. sequel, which, which they did for Aladdin. They did for Aladdin. They did for Lion King. They did for you know, several things. And it's, it never had the same voice talent or, you know, or lost a lot of the, the, the talent on the voices. Uh, you could tell the budget was nowhere near as high. It was just, it was a cash grab. And that's a little bit now what Moana 2 is kind of sounding like. If they're not having a lot of the pe- big people that were involved in the first one and they are changing the format from TV show to movie kind of quickly. Yeah. And that sounds like a, we got to make some money off this guy. So uh, when I, basically, I was I was playing devil's advocate because I'm I'm not really obviously I don't really care to see. I liked them, the first so, Moana okay. a lot, but I'm not interested in seeing either of these. If I had to choose, I would actually go with. Even though you're saying you, know, I can understand production value. The Rock hasn't attached himself to the animated sequel. 
but at least it'll be like a new story and hopefully original. So that'll yeah. maybe make it interesting. Whereas the live action thing, yeah, if it's nothing but a retail, I, I really, it's kind of like you're saying with the little mermaid, why or you are saying with Aladdin? Why just stay with the original. And especially because this Moana is so new that a live action remake, it's not like you're bringing it to a whole new audience. No, the audience probably remembers the animated original. <laughs> mm-hmm. So to me, if I had to see one, I would probably go towards uh the animated sequel, although I think neither one of these are obviously the top of my anticipated list because we gave that the last show. Yeah, but I believe you you had a rundown of the the slate that Disney announced, and apparently this is unfortunately kind of a common occurrence. Or it's like this is a sequel, but it's not even the. I think there were other sequels as well. That are yeah, so the Walt Disney Company, Bob Iger, uh, gave an announcement just yesterday about their upcoming major upcoming animated films. Uh, so the Walt Disney studio, of course, still putting out animated films and they have their release schedule for that. Um, and there's a lot of numbers after the <laughs> names of these films okay. because they're all sequels. Um, we have Moana two, which you just mentioned that is slated for November 27th. Okay. Then we have Zootopia two. Okay which is coming out in the following year, November 26, 2025. Okay. And now we've been announced that there's going to be a Frozen 3. Wow. Which I had forgotten they made a Frozen 2. <laughs> okay. You're probably not the only person. I do not. That. Yeah. My, my children have all grown. Sure. So we are out of the Frozen zone, <laughs> and I'm not aware of the sequel. But yes, there's a Frozen 3 now. Okay. And a Toy Story 5. Wow. That to me is... Both of those 2026. Yeah, the first... I mean, Toy Story 5. I, I, I was... I feel like one of the few people that actually really appreciated Toy Story 4. A lot of people felt no, like no, they kind of... A lot of, of people did. With the third one, they felt like, you know, leave it at the trilogy. Why are they doing the fourth one? I felt like there was enough... Enough there in the fourth one that I thought yeah. it was warranted. But a fifth one, I just, whew, yeah. Well, but, but really... I'll, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit. Sure. Uh, yes, when they announced Toy Story 4, I remember the groans across the entire <laughs> internet world. Sure. Were, oh, gosh, why are we doing this again? We had a trilogy. It ended. It was a great ending. We stopped. But then people that saw Toy Story, Toy Story 4 was like, oh, yeah, it was actually really good. So we really liked that. I mean, that brought us Forky. I did bring us Forky. <laughs> So, yes, we're kind of going through the same cycles with five. I'm sure for the next year or two, we're going to be talking about how, why are they making a Toy Story 5? The fourth one was so perfect in ending. Why did they stop? And then there's yeah. a good chance we could watch Toy Story 5 and be like, oh, well, yeah, obviously we needed this. This is, this is perfect. <laughs> we introduced this time a, a plastic, I don't know, a knife or something. I don't know. But we'll see. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's, uh, that's coming. Okay. The thing for me, Chris, is that, you know, this is Walt Disney an- announcing their major animated film releases in their all sequels. Yeah. That's what's tough. I know that the, the Walt Disney Company, we've talked about it, how they've had some struggles. You sure. know, their Star Wars, they own the Star Wars franchise, and that has had some hardships. We've talked about ad nauseum. They own the Marvel films, and yeah. that has had a year or two of some diminishing returns and people not as happy with the output, even causing by Iger to say, yeah, we're going to have to kind of back up and like clean slate a little bit and get really super focused on the things that really work and hmm. not worry about quantity. Let's worry about quality. I'm like, well, sounds like something that should have started from day one, but you know, uh, so <laughs> better late than never. Right. But you know, when I hear this, I'm like, yeah, okay. They're just playing the hits and there's no chances being taken. And I'm disappointed that there's not some new, original animated film or some new creative idea. No, it's let's take four of our ones that made us money and we're going to figure out how to crank out another one. And it's just disappointing. It's sure. a little disappointing. So, yeah. Um, I've got one more story, Chris. Okay. Um, we talked about, well, we didn't really talk about Tim Burton and Beetlejuice last week. We, we mentioned the fact that, you know... It, it was one of your anticipated yeah, films. Beetlejuice, or, yeah, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, which is what they're calling it, by the way, I think. Saying it twice, which I think is hilarious. Uh, it's ingenious. Yeah. Um, did not make your top 10 list of anticipated films because you had your caveat of it not being sequels or remakes on there. Got right. it. Understood. <laughs> um, I am very anxious to see Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. 
uh, because I want a return to form of Tim Burton. I want the creepy, weird Tim Burton. Sure. I want it uh, full blazing going, uh, all full tilt Burton. Okay. And I want full tilt Michael Keaton. I want it all. And I hope this film can deliver. But let's look past that. Okay. Okay. Uh, Beale do we have, Juice, do we have a release date for that? I think it's this fall. Okay. I think. I think it's like September or so this year, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, it has been announced that uh, we know what his next film that he will be tackling, okay. uh, Tim Burton, will be. Which this one, interesting. Uh, I get where he's going with it, but just has some interesting notes to it. Is it a sequel as well? It's a remake. Mm. And it's not through Disney. He is with Warner Brothers now. And Warner Brothers is who's releasing the Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice movie. Okay. Warner Brothers was the original release of of uh, Beetlejuice. Right. And he's staying with Warner Brothers for this film as well, which I think is encouraging because I do think the Disney side of him might have created the Tim Burton I, I fell out of favor with, the Dumbo, the Alice in Wonderland, the uh, all of that. But so. remakes, he's done Planet of the Apes and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have another remake. Okay. Uh, but it is working with writer Gillian Flynn. Now, Gillian Flynn is a uh, gone girl. Gone girl. So she has written uh, her novel. Dark places was adapted as a limited series for HBO. Right. She did the screenplay for David Fincher's film gone girl. Uh, she took her book sharp objects into an HBO miniseries as well. Uh, so now uh, this film is being written by Gillian Flynn. This remake of, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Now think about this, okay? Okay. <laughs> doing a, what could be considered a campy remake of a 1950s uh, sci-fi film. Right. But you take a writer like Gillian Flynn writing the script for it, which obviously in her work, it's a lot of, it's a lot of social commentary. There's some really you know, great concepts being explored in her work. Okay. I don't know. I could see this being a little more than just Tim Burton having fun with a remake of a film he wants to uh, play with. Well, and okay. Yeah. I, I'm very interested in that film. I mean, you, t yeah. Okay. So the other two remakes that I mentioned, Charlie and the chocolate factory, Planet of the apes, both of those are really well-known IP and you know, they, they just, they're really well-known. I yeah. checked the 54 one. Yes. I have heard of the film. Mm -hmm. I have never seen it. Um, so the fact that they're taking something like that, and yeah, it, that sounds fascinating to me. Well, okay. So if you're not familiar with the original film, and it's been a really long time since I saw it. Oh, so you've seen it. Long time ago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the science fiction horror story follows a wealthy heiress who grows into a giant <laughs> after an alien encounter oh. and exacts revenge on her cheating husband. See, okay. Yeah. That's where I'm like, that sounds like something Gillian Flynn would yep, be involved like, in. All right. Uh, now they're saying, obviously it's unclear at this point, you know, how closely this, this remake is going to be to that same exact, uh, script. Uh, you know, it was a 1958 movie. Wow. Um, there's the varieties reporting you know, the first film carried a budget of $88,000. So <laughs> this is probably going to cost a little more than that. Sure. Make. Um, but yeah, it is with Warner brothers, which okay. I think again, I'm happy with that too, because it's kind of doesn't have that Disney Disney umbrella over it to kind of keep it in a, in a certain space. So we'll he can go as weird out. as he wants in theory. He would hope so. You would right. hope so. Um, and I'm assuming, well, okay. So not knowing, I'm assuming Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice will probably be like a PG 13. Yes. I would Whereas I'm curious mm -hmm. if attack of the 50 foot woman would try to, because you know, exacting revenge. It could be like horror comedy type thing, but maybe be. go the R route. Look, I mean, they could be, I mean, I, I don't know what the tone will be. Sure. Think about the, um, the invisible man movie that they made with, um, yeah. What was her name? What's the actress name? Oh, um, shoot from mad man. Elizabeth and, um, Moss, Elizabeth Moss. And that one was played super serious, super, serious, super straight. Sure. And it had a lot more relationship, dynamics to it. I mean, there was a lot of drama involved in that. Right. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to be terribly surprised if this movie is actually kind of played with a little more of an edgy, serious feel to it. I mean, you can take this okay. ridiculous premise of a woman who's grown huge, but I mean, if it's a revenge thing, if it's a, 
you know, kind of fighting back on society against things that and norms that they, they, they have placed on them. I don't know. Hmm. There could be some interesting things to play with. Okay. I, yes. I'm very curious to see where the tone of this goes. Is it a campy remake? Is it a uh, very faithful remake or is it a, t- let's take it into a very different direction as a true drama quote horror film. And we don't have any actress attached no. as of right now. No, I, think- I mean, you mentioned Elizabeth Moss. She could be yeah, really good. That would actually be really good. Yeah, she would be great. Huh. Uh, yeah, no, nothing else has been been said. Okay. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice comes out September 6th. Okay. Um, but supposedly this will be the next project he works on after that. So okay. we will see with that. I'm, come on, Tim. Just <laughs> get me back on board. You got two movies possibly coming coming out uh, in a row that I'm very interested in seeing did what's going to happen. Did you watch any of his Wednesday, the television series that he did, did for not. Netflix? No. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was, no, I heard it was, good. I heard it was good. I heard it was good. So I, I don't want to make it sound like Tim Burton's done nothing at all that I thought it's been good. It's just, I think in general, the, the level of, uh, of output hasn't just not been what we were used to. Sure. Um, uh, previous decades, but, um, there's always hope. There's always <laughs> hope. We'll see what these next two films bring out for him. So, all right, Chris. Well, that is what we've got for today. That was our discussions. That was our news items to share. Uh, did we miss anything? No. Did we miss anything? No. Yeah. Uh, if anybody has any comments or questions or anything about any of the news items we shared, or maybe some thoughts on origin they'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear from as well. How can they? Uh, how can they get a hold of us? You can send an email to info at footcandle.org. You can follow us on Twitter at footcandlefilm. Facebook, we're there as Foot Candle Film Society. And we're also on Instagram and threads, just simply Foot Candle Film. Uh, Alan and I are also on Letterboxd, where we try to like track what we're seeing and sometimes leave quick takes. Do us a favor. If you like the show, consider giving us a star rating, write a review, share with your friends on whatever service you receive your favorite podcast on, because it could help us reach new listeners. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Um, and we, of course, have you know, just the Foot Candle Film Festival 2024 edition coming in late September, but we've got plenty of time to still talk to you about that but just keep it in your radar don't plan on anything major uh, events in your life don't plan any weddings don't plan any family <laughs> vacations that last couple weekends of september because you, you, you know, can mark september 6th as beetlejuice beetlejuice yes. and then leave vacancies for the rest of september so you can make sure you can come to the festival right so. <laughs> yes that's the plan all right well thanks so much for listening and we will look forward to talking to everybody next time take care see you in the ticket line Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.